today's reading is from Acts chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus who Paul, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I want to address uh, this question today. Why do we bother with the gospel? Or rather, why are we obsessed with the gospel? Um, if, you, if you are you know, a visitor here and you, and you, you come and listen... Uh, you'll hear me talk and refer to and us talk about and enjoy sing about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. So why are you guys so obsessed with the gospel? Why are we as a church obsessed with the gospel? Why are we gospel-centered? Um, why, why is it so important that this is really um, just yeah, f- foundational uh, for us as a church? And uh, that's, that's uh, what this text answers uh, for me. Uh, why, why are we obsessed with the gospel? And uh, there's three reasons why we as a church are gospel-centered, not only because we see it um, as so important to the early church, but uh, we see it in this text as well. Why are we so imp- uh, obsessed with the gospel? Um, firstly, we see that just because you're s- sincere doesn't mean you're saved. All right. Secondly, we see just because you're religious doesn't mean you're real. And thirdly and finally, if you're a true believer, then you will be truly transformed. That's why we're obsessed with the gospel. Okay, so first of all, just because you're sincere doesn't equal you're saved. Um, and that's really important for us. In fact, I, I want to put up a map just now because uh, I realize that, that from a lot of these talks I've been doing, I've been referring to people and areas and locations and they're just words to us, you know. And so I thought to myself this week, I haven't put up a map in this whole series from the beginning of January, so you may not be familiar with some of the areas that I'm talking about. Um, but here is a map of uh, what they call here Paul's third missionary journey, which is part of what we're looking at today, his third trip, big trip um, around what was then you know, the Roman Empire. Uh, doesn't, this map doesn't include 
Italy down here in Rome, obviously, but uh, in the ancient Near East, um, all so, sort of uh, centered around the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, what we see uh, at the end of chapter 18, we're not going to read this just now, is that Paul is back at his home uh, city of Antioch just there. <clears throat> and it says in uh, chapter 18, verse 22, he was at Antioch. He spent some time there with his brothers and sisters in that church. And then it says he departed and went from one place to another through the region of Galatia, uh, which is here, all right, and Phrygia, which is here. Um, and what was he doing? He was strengthening all the disciples. So this is something we see time and again when the apostles um, plant churches. They don't just plant them and then move on and that's it. Have no further contact with them. Particularly Paul, we see going back again, back again, strengthening um, the, the, the believers. If he can't get there personally, what does he do? He writes letters. And many of his letters uh, form part of our, a significant part of our New Testament, um, his letters to the churches. So here we are. And we join just now at the beginning of Acts 19. We join Paul. He's been making his way through Asia, key because remember a few weeks ago we saw he was discouraged and disappointed he couldn't get into Asia he wanted to get into Asia but the spirit of Jesus didn't let him instead he ended up in Philippi up here um, but this time no such blockage for whatever reason God has has in his grace has allowed him to go into Asia probably a few years after so he does eventually get to Asia which is which is great it's very encouraging and um, for those of us who are waiting and asking God why can't I do this why isn't this happening for me why isn't this popping open um, Perhaps it's just not the right time. Um, anyway, so he's making his way. He's encouraging all the Christians and the believers in Lystra and Derby, you know, Antioch up here. Um, that's another Antioch. Ephesus, and that's where he arrives just now. Okay, so it's on the, uh, this is, this is modern-day Turkey just here. This is, this is Greece, this whole area here. Crete, my, my friends in Cyprus right here on, on holiday. Um, maybe, maybe you've been there. This is Jerusalem. This is like what we call now Palestine down here. Okay, North Africa at the bottom of the screen. Good, so that has a, I'm going to put that down there. That um, shows you roughly where we are geographically in um, the ancient Near East. Okay, so he's in Ephesus uh, and uh, strengthening the disciples. And so it says that he was on his way into Ephesus and he met this group in verse 1 of disciples. And it just seems to be that as, as the story goes on, his conversation opens out that um, there's something not just right about these disciples that he meets. Something just doesn't sit right with Paul. We, we don't know at the start what it is, but he goes through this process of asking questions. And um, it goes to show the power of a good question, right? Sometimes if you don't know the answer, you don't know what's going on, just ask good questions and it sometimes opens up what's, what's really going on. And, and so he just gets the feeling, I, I suspect, that something isn't just right about these disciples that he meets in Ephesus, right? So um, he asks them this question in verse 2 and he says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Their grasp wasn't 100% here. Uh, their understanding wasn't, wasn't solid. So did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And their, their, their response just goes to show that he was right to query and question uh, their understanding because they responded by saying, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. We haven't heard there is a Holy Spirit. So you can see right, right at the start, can't you? These, are, these are disciples. We're not sure what type of disciples they are, but they have a major blockage in their understanding about Jesus, about God, about Pentecost, about the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, we say we're gospel-centered, spirit-empowered community on mission. And there is something way adrift with this group of disciples here that Paul meets in Ephesus. And so then he asks another question because he's, you know, got detective mode in, in his mind now and he's, he's trying to delve even deeper. And then he asks the second question, into what were you baptized? Into what? Um, 
Of course, if you're, if you're baptized as a Christian, uh, in, in water, that is, um, you're, you're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, right? It's the, it's the triune name of God. You're baptized into the Trinitarian God, right? Um, a Christian baptism, that's what it is. Um, but their answer, again, is revealing. They say, we were baptized into John's baptism. And suddenly things, I believe, became clear for Paul right there. He had an aha moment. Uh, now he understands why they sounded a bit off, why they weren't uh, the real deal. They weren't coming across like, uh, like, like real disciples of Jesus. What did they mean when they said, we've had John's baptism? What do they mean? Well, uh, John's baptism is referring to John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was a distant relative, is a cousin of some form of Jesus. Uh, John the Baptist, it says, uh, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb, you know, before he was even born. Uh, he was a special anointed prophet of God, and his job uh, was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. That's what John the Baptist did. And so as he, as he um, went into his public ministry, John the Baptist went off, not into the, the, the center of power, you know, in Jerusalem or any other city. He went off into the Judean wilderness, uh, proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord, right? And many, it says many people went out to him uh, from the high and low of society and everything in between. Many people went out to John the Baptist and his, his message to them was this, repent, turn around to God, prepare yourselves because the Lord is coming. God is coming. The Messiah is coming. And then John, as part of that preaching, you know, to prepare and to repent and to turn to God, offered then baptism of repentance. You know, if you want to get yourself ready, if you want to prepare for the coming Messiah, says John, then be baptized. And so many people were baptized in preparation and readiness for the coming Messiah. And so when this group of believers here say that they've received John's baptism and nothing else, that's what they're talking about. They've received this preparatory uh, baptism but as paul says in, in in verse four you know john baptized with the baptism of repentance telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is jesus what's he saying he's saying look look believers you know these these, these as it says 12 men uh, in verse six seven uh 12 men that he, he met these disciples he says look you, you you've got to first base in your understanding Right? But you haven't, you haven't made it round yet. You haven't, you haven't got the full story. You have an incomplete gospel. You haven't heard the, 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 full, the full tale. You haven't been told, evidently, that there is a, a, a real Jesus, that he has actually come, just as John predicted. You, you, you haven't come to believe that Jesus came and he ministered to people, that he healed the sick, that he, he preached of the kingdom of God, that, that he died on a cross, that he rose again. You haven't heard that he ascended to God in, in front of our eyes. And from there, he poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people. They, they, they hadn't heard any of that. Even John the Baptist in his preaching said, predicted that there will be one who will be coming who will baptize you in the Spirit. Well, says Paul, that is exactly what happened. That is exactly what has happened. Essentially, this group of, of disciples uh, that Paul met in Ephesus that day were living as if Pentecost hadn't happened. They were living pre-Pentecost, right? Or they were living in the Old Testament. They hadn't yet made the transition into the New Testament, into the new covenant, the covenant of the Holy Spirit. They hadn't heard the true message. They hadn't received its intended benefits. They hadn't grasped salvation in Jesus. They hadn't entered the Pentecost community. 
And so these people were called disciples. That means followers, students, if you like. But they knew some of, of Jesus. But what they knew of him was just a shadow. It wasn't the truth. It wasn't the reality of, of who he really was. And Paul effectively, this is just given to us in summary in the text, but Paul effectively said to them, look, you've been chasing shadows. Now it's time for you to step into the light. You've just been prepared for the Messiah. I'm going to teach you and I'm going to show you the one who's called Jesus, who's the light of the world. And so it says in verse 5, on hearing this, they heard, on hearing this, the gospel, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They received Christian baptism, that is. Not in the name of John, but in the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus, who is Lord. And then it says that Paul laid his hands on them. And in verse 6, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. The Holy Spirit came upon them, marking them out effectively, bringing them into that Pentecost community, taking them from Old Testament believer to New Testament believer, from the shadow of things to come to the fullness of light in the gospel of Jesus. See, until this group of believers or disciples heard the true apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ, until they responded in faith, until they received the spirit and the water of baptism, they were not saved. They'd only heard a small part of the story. They'd only received an incomplete gospel or a, a sub-gospel. And, and these people may have held their beliefs very sincerely. They may have took what little they knew and believed it really and truly in the middle of their hearts. They may have been very nice people indeed. But as I'm trying to show you, being sincere does not equal being saved. Because you can be sincerely wrong about something and that makes you wrong. And so therefore, as we've been learning um, through this, this series, there is nothing more important there is nothing more important than hearing and understanding the gospel of Jesus. There's nothing more important than hearing it. It's so weighty. There is so much behind the gospel. This is why so many people, the apostles included, have given their lives to speaking and telling and defending the gospel message of Jesus. There's nothing more important than hearing and understanding it. Eternal destinies are at stake based on whether someone hears and understands the gospel of Jesus. Our knowledge and experience of God, even now, as in our lived experience, is at stake, based on whether someone has understood and known the gospel of Jesus. Healing and freedom and life is at stake, based on someone knowing or not knowing the gospel of Jesus. There is nothing more important for us, for our church, for our families, for our city, than the gospel of Jesus. And here's the great problem, folks. To our great sadness and our shame, there are many people in our own lives and in our own communities that are hearing an incomplete gospel. They're hearing a sub-gospel. And quite honestly, that is utterly scandalous. There are, there are people, unfortunately, who are sat in churches, Christian churches, hearing messages that do not present the message that will rescue them from the consequence of life in rebellion to God. Even within evangelical churches within Northern Ireland, and by the way, when we say evangelical, that word means prioritizing the gospel of Jesus. That's what evangelical means. 
even in evangelical churches within our own province, people are hearing a deficient and one-sided message. Look, I don't want to beat up on other churches. I don't want to do that. I don't want you thinking that he's just saying this to make himself or us sound better than everybody else, because that's certainly not the case. But I, I'm, I just want you to see that it is so crucially important that we cannot get this wrong. Here's, I, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but sometimes I take down notes from other churches I visit, you know, about some of the things, the kooky things they come out with. And um, here are some of the, here are, like, honestly, if it's not true, it would make you laugh. But um, here are some of the statements that I've heard in evangelical churches in Northern Ireland, right, um, that explain the gospel. <clears throat> Here's the gospel, and these are, these are quotes, right? The gospel is that God wants to do this journey of life with us. No, it's not. The gospel is that God comes for the brokenhearted. No, it's not. The gospel is the adventure of a life lived with him. Sounds good, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus comes for marriages on the rocks. That's not the gospel. These things are, he does do. These things are, God does come. God does do life with us. But folks, that is not the gospel. We cannot confuse that with the gospel. These are examples of what I would call a psychological gospel. Basically says this. The message is that Jesus has come here to make you feel better about yourself, to help boost your self-esteem, to make you a better person, to make you more productive and successful and, and help you live a good moral life. That's the psychological gospel these things can and do flow from the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Or maybe you've heard of the other sort of form of gospel, not the psychological gospel, but the Greenpeace gospel, I've called it. That God is, is uh, Jesus has come to remake the world, to restore order, to help us to save the world and to create a fair and just society in which all people can flourish. That is very good, and yes, that does absolutely flow from God and the gospel, but it's not the gospel. Often these types of gospel, whether it's Greenpeace gospel, psychological gospel, or other things, flow from a reaction. Let's face it, flows from a reaction to a different style of preaching that, that we may have heard or become familiar with here in Northern Ireland. Uh, it's commonly known as the turn and burn style of preaching. You know, if you don't come to Christ, you'll burn in hell, so therefore turn to Jesus, that kind of thing. And so churches, well-meaning churches, well-intended churches, want to try and help people to come and meet Jesus, and so they soften it off, and they go into these other types of gospel preaching, psychological gospel or gospel, uh, Greenpeace gospel. And there's a desire to reach out and connect, and, I, and I, that's good, I love that and I affirm that. But we cannot lose our understanding of the gospel in so doing. Because the kind of disciples that the, these Gospels produce are kind of like these 12 men that we meet here in Ephesus. They might be sincere people who listen to this stuff. They might be nice people. They might be well-meaning people who hear these things. And we, we can't even blame them because that's all they've heard. But the, in these disciples, there will be ultimately no power of God at work in their lives. In these disciples that these sort of gospels produce, there will be no deep and lasting transformation within their hearts and souls. 
Within these types of disciples that are produced by these Gospels, there will be no assurance, no security, no roots. People might sit through hours and weeks and years of this kind of stuff and never actually hear how we can be helped and saved from sin and taken off a pathway that will lead us otherwise to hell. Hence, therefore, our obsession here at Foundation Church with the gospel. That's why we mention it every week. That's why we labor to ensure that the gospel is heard and not just heard, but understood and held out with clarity and with passion so that people are compelled to come to Jesus and give their lives to him. That's why we teach and hold this stuff out accurately, because it is the message that literally saves you. Paul says in his own words in Romans 1 verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. We can't understand this in any other way. There is nothing more important than hearing the gospel clearly and fully and responding to it in faith. That means, uh, folks, that when visitors come to us from other churches, um, not saying every visitor will be in this situation, but some visitors from other churches may be hearing some things for the first time here at Foundation Church that they have never heard before. That is a devastating sadness, but it is the truth. They may be hearing things they've never heard before because they're hearing the gospel for the first time. We cannot make any assumptions about what people do and do not understand or know when they come to us, irrespective of their background. That's why we're not only clear with the gospel, but we take the gospel and we build our lives and our community around it. It's the fabric of everything that we are. So when we say that we are gospel-centered as a church, what we're saying is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about him, is our beating heart. It is our innermost uh, core value and, and identity. It is the thing that just pumps life around our body. That's the gospel and that's why we're obsessed with it. So just being sincere is not enough. Doesn't mean you're saved. Being sincere doesn't mean you're saved necessarily, but being religious doesn't equal being real. Second point. We're in Ephesus, as you saw on the map. And it seems to be that Paul uh, sets up shop. Um, the few verses that we didn't read out today, he, um, he apparently hires a building, a hall of Tyrannus, it's called. And uh, in that building, in the hottest part of the day, um, he is reasoning, he is lecturing, he's teaching, he's just got an open door policy. Anyone who wants to come in and listen to Paul talking about Jesus and the gospel um, and taking questions can do that. And it says that he went about this for around two years so that all of the residents of Asia, that area that we saw there, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. He was there for the long haul. But in between his teaching, probably in the evenings, he was tent making as well. He was paying his way. He was a tent maker by trade. And so he uh, quite frequently, as, a, as an apostle, went around and, and, and plied his trade to, to pay his way and so that he wouldn't uh, require money from the churches that he planted. And it says there in verse 11, very interestingly, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, right? Miracles themselves, by definition, are kind of extraordinary, right? They're not part of our ordinary experience day to day. And yet there's something even more, you know, profound and amazing and powerful about what was happening in that city at that time, because they are extraordinary, extraordinary miracles, right? Super special, so much so that 
Even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin, probably his work clothes, right? Aprons and, you know, he would have put on and, you know, handkerchief maybe to, to put around his sweaty brow. Who knows? But anyway, things that he had worn or touched him were taken, right, uh, to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. I mean, this, this is probably in terms of the miraculous activity, the high point in Paul's career. These things had never happened prior to this in such a, an astounding way. Don't think they happened again afterwards. We're not, we're not told of it, but just wonderful high watermark in his sort of uh, miraculous activities. Amazing. Power of God was just tangible. The signs of God's presence were clear. And there he is preaching the gospel of Jesus and these wonderful signs that sort of uh, attended them as well. Something was stirring in that city. Something was, was going on. Something powerful was happening. But it seemed to be that there were some people who, who looked at what was going on, these, these, these extraordinary miracles, and thought to themselves, yeah, I, I think we can use this. This is good. I like this. They, they heard Paul use this name of Jesus to, to apparently pull off some remarkable signs and wonders. And so there were some individuals who thought to themselves, you know, I'm going to go and have a go with that. This is my trade, you know, I dabble in the occult, I sort of, I do a bit of this spiritual stuff. Uh, it, was a, a big, it was a big industry back in those days. Um, and so apparently some heard and thought, you know what, we'll, we'll, we'll take that on board as well. And it says there that some people have been invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Some people were saying, I adjure you, that is, I command you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And they would use this as a sort of... Uh, um, an invocation or, or a, you know, a spell to remove an evil spirit from somebody. I command you, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I mean, even that phrase, right, sounds utterly fake. It sounds totally fake. There is certainly no sincerity here. The, the, these people using these phrases didn't even know what they were talking about. They certainly didn't know Jesus. They just knew him as the one that Paul proclaims. Madness. And then the text sort of focuses in on this particular story. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest in verse 14 named Skivar were doing this. There's so much of this exorcism and occult practice in this city at that time. Spells were being uh, cast, charms, you know, meddling with the spirit world, all this kind of thing. If you are a Jewish exorcist, uh, a Jewish magician, you were even more uh, highly prized. Uh, because you apparently had a, a, a different God on your side, a unique God, you know, the God of the Jews. And so here we go. Uh, we see the seven sons of Skivar having a go, using the name, uh, using Jesus or his name like some sort of spell or incantation. They could add to their, their list, their books of spells, you know, and add this uh, other phrase to it as well, because obviously it has power. And little did they know. They weren't expecting this one. The evil spirit in verse 15, um, in, who was in a man at that time, they were trying to exorcise, you know. Uh, the evil spirit answered back. And he said, it said, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, had the evil spirit, leapt on them, mastered them all, and, and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. He gave them such a beating and tore the clothes off their back that they ran out naked, battered, totally humiliated. Everyone saw it. Everyone talked about it. It was clear that they were overcome. You can't just use the name of Jesus like a spell. But here, here's the problem. Here's the issue. They thought 
these, these, these individuals thought that if they had the right words said in the right way, the right vocabulary, then that they could summon up the same power and produce the same results that Paul was getting. They thought they could just add the name of Jesus to their magical toolkit, their books on how-to for exorcisms. But the issue here, folks, as we are learning, is that just because you're religious doesn't mean you're real. Even the demon knew that these guys were fakers. They didn't believe a word of what they were saying. They just thought they could pull a fast one and do some cool magic. And see, folks, this is how it is for some people today. We... We, we, we meet people who think that they can use religious words, they can, they can sound religious, they can even behave religious, you know, good living, good morals, and that somehow or other, because they do those things and invoke those kind of words and that language, they can enjoy the benefits of a life with God. But just because you're religious doesn't mean you're real. And, and the episode here with these seven sons of Skivar show us that you can look and you can sound, and you can speak like a Christian, but you can still be on the wrong side of Jesus. You might be able to fool other people. I personally, I, I'm pretty convinced anyway, have noted plenty of such people in Christian churches. You know, you can use the right language, you can fool other people. You can have them believe that you are a real believer. You can even fool yourself if you keep it up long enough. You don't know where a lie ends and the truth begins. You could fool yourself into thinking that God would be happy with this empty use of religion. But you know what? At the end of the day, if the demon can figure it out, and the demon is not exactly a pro-God, pro-Jesus power, then certainly God himself can see right through the games and the pretense and the waffle that many people come out with. God can see right through that. And here's how it works for some people here in Northern Ireland. Using Jesus, they may use Jesus as some kind of good luck charm. They may use Jesus in some kind of superstitious way. If you've got a picture of him up in your, your hallway or you wear a cross around your neck or something like that, then you're good, you're protected. You know, some people use tarot, card, tarot cards, some people rely on astrology, some people pray to the saints. Some people just use Jesus. But it's all kind of on the same level. You know, they're, they're hoping for some sort of power, some sort of connection, some sort of blessing. This doesn't matter, by the way, if you're from a Protestant background or a Catholic background. We all, we all do it. Many people just use Jesus as some kind of good luck charm just to give them some form of blessing. Even in certain circumstances in society, it actually works to, to be religious or to look religious. It gets you places perhaps maybe less so in our, in our post-modern, post-Christian society, but there are still some roles within society where it works for you to be religious. I'm thinking of a job in politics or in certain uh, industries. Um, it works for you to be seen to be Christian and an evangelical Christian at that. You get voted in. Even some people who want to get married in the church, it's amazing how Christian they suddenly become when they want the vicar to, to marry them. You know, they're all interested for a few minutes when it works and then course when they're married that's that's the end of it sadly even some churches and christian pastors near and far essentially use jesus to attain fame and power and influence for themselves what's chief in their minds is giving themselves a platform using jesus like a tool using him as a means to an end rather than the glorious end of all things that he is 
Jesus gives us this really stark warning at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He's talking about the final day of reckoning when all people, dead or alive, are going to stand before Jesus and, and, and give account for their actions. And Jesus said, on that day, I will get people coming to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? You know, they're bringing the stuff that they've done in the name of Jesus and they're saying, look, you know, look at what we've done. Isn't that, isn't that great? Haven't we, haven't we passed the test? And Jesus says, in that situation, I never knew you. Get away from me, you worker of lawlessness. Can you see what he's saying? He's saying that, that, that you can do all sorts of things and you can, na- you can name the name of Jesus and you can invoke the name for, for whatever it is that you want to do or be. But it is entirely possible to be ridding people of demons and doing many mighty works for the name of Jesus and yet he never knows you. You are not in relationship with him. Just because you're religious doesn't mean you're real. Doesn't mean, by the way, that necessarily you're going to go out and meet a demon and get beat up. But one day, for those who rely on their religion and using the name of Jesus, but their hearts are not transformed or shaped by him, there will be a day of humiliation and shame for those who use the gospel as a tool to advance their own ends. That's what he says. That's why we're obsessed with the gospel and getting it right. So we've seen that being sincere does not equal being saved. Being religious does not equal being real. But finally, I want to turn this around and hopefully uh, encourage you and show you being a true believer means that you will be truly transformed. So how does the gospel save? How does it actually save? Because it's not by being sincere and it's not by being religious. Then how does it work? How is it, in the words of Paul, how is it the power of God for salvation? Well, we see in this text um, two ways, two ways that the gospel actually does save. First of all, the words of Jesus are heard. And secondly, the power of Jesus is shown, right? That's how the gospel works uh, in your life. So first of all, the word of Jesus heard. Um, These uh, believers, going back to these believers in Ephesus in verses one through seven, they had a deficient understanding of the gospel. It was all very much tied in with their reception of the Holy Spirit and their, their baptism in water comes as a complex you know as a group anyway they didn't know the gospel therefore they hadn't received the holy spirit therefore they hadn't undergone baptism where did paul start with them did he perform a sign and wonder and say aha i can make this uh stone into a tortoise ah that's the power of god did he turn water into wine no he didn't do any of that stuff He didn't do signs and wonders. He closed the gap in their knowledge. He told them the gospel. He completed the circle. They heard the word of Jesus and they were baptized and received the Holy Spirit in verses five and six. And when they received the Holy Spirit, it said that it was marked dramatically with them speaking in tongues and prophesying. A sign of their inclusion into the Pentecost community. They heard the word. That's what they needed. Just want to be clear, uh, it's not always as dramatic as this. When you receive the Holy Spirit, when you put your trust in Jesus, um, not always dramatic as this. Uh, the, the speaking in tongues and the prophesying, it may have been for you. Seems to be that the way Paul puts it and how he words it, 
uh, it seems to be that these remarkable signs of the Holy Spirit were quite common when people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Either way, they heard the word, trusted Christ, and became true believers. A true believer means that you are truly transformed. But the second way the gospel works with that, you know, it's not either or, it's with that, is the, the power of Jesus is shown. Okay? And again, we see that in, in the second half. Uh, this outpouring of power uh, of God through Paul, even the, the seven sons in their humiliating experience showed the city of Ephesus with all of its occult practices and all of its idolatry that in the name of Jesus, there is power. And it says in verse 18 that those who saw all this stuff happening and going on confessed and divulged their practices. They brought their books and they burned them. Apparently, you see, this, the, the power within a spell, within a magic spell, was bound up within its secrecy. Once you learn the spell, you don't tell it to other people because you lose the power, right? And someone else gets it. So what they're doing here is confessing and divulging their practices. They are, what these, these magicians and these spiritualists are effectively giving up their, their spiritual occult practices, their spells and their sorcery. They're giving up their power. They're turning it over to Jesus. And we see they take it further as well. This public burning of books. All their spells and their scrolls and their charts could have been sold. Let's face it, could have been sold to their other uh, pals and, and, and raised for a lot of money. But it says that the value of all these books uh, from those who knew, you know, came to faith in Jesus and was transformed, they gave their books, they burned them up. The value of all of these books was 50,000 pieces of silver. Um, a piece, I, did, I did a bit of research. A piece of silver was roughly equivalent to a day's wage. All right? So 365 pieces of silver is a year's salary. This is 50,000 pieces of silver. So when you calculate it up and you, you, know, you figure out the, the average wage of a, a worker in our own you know, society, for example, we're looking at two to three million pounds worth of books and scrolls and priceless artifacts that were gathered up in the back car park, covered with petrol, and someone threw a match on it. And up it went in smoke. Because when you are a true believer, you are truly transformed. The first group, these 12 um, disciples that Paul first meets, they, they hear the word, they repent, and then they see signs. The second group of, of, of uh, people who come to faith in Jesus, they see the signs, they hear the word, and they repent. It's a different order. They both have a different experience of, of Jesus and the gospel, but all of it comes together. True believers are truly transformed, right? And the Bible's word for this transformation is repentance. Repentance. It is this radical and complete change of your mind and about turn. Being a Christian is not about how sincere you are, although that is important. It's not about how religious you are, although that is good as well. But ultimately, being a Christian is about repenting. It's about turning to Jesus it is a, and then seeing him at work in you and around you. True believers are truly transformed. And the effect of this radical turnaround, we'll look in verse 20. It says, I love this. Love these little summary verses. Uh, so the word of the Lord, that is the gospel, continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's kind of old language, right? But prevailed, you know, pushed back powerfully. The, the gospel of Jesus continued to, to go out. Many more people continued to receive it by faith. And, and it was met with power and, and uh, convincing signs. Word and spirit 
both growing. The advance of the gospel was clear. That's the effect of this radically transformed group of people. Folks, it doesn't matter what your background is or your previous understanding, uh, whether, whether you're from a faith tradition or from no faith at all. My question to you is this. Have you experienced true transformation? True repentance of the kind that we see here in this text. Has Jesus got you so deep in your heart that you have turned around? Maybe in your life, there's a different outworking of that repentance than what we see here. But have you experienced such a deep and profound encounter with Jesus that you have been transformed, you have repented, you have turned around? Have you, in other words, completely surrendered your life to him? I want you to hear me correctly when I say that. I'm not asking you, are you sincere? I'm not asking you, are you good and live a good moral life? But I'm asking you, have you given yourself heart and mind to Jesus? Maybe, maybe you have some books that you need to burn right now. Whatever they may be, symbols of the life that Jesus is calling you to leave behind. Maybe you have some of those books you need to round up and take that radical and bold step to take them up and burn them. I'm talking maybe actually, you might actually have books that you need to get rid of, but metaphorically, that stuff of the old life you need to gather together and destroy in the name of Jesus. Old sins that lurk in your life, patterns of living, gather them up. Bring them before God and take a match to them. Destroy them. Get rid. Maybe for you it's not a, a thing or a practice or a behavior, but a, an intellectual objection, a sign of the old life. Maybe right now Jesus is calling you to drop your falsely held intellectual objections that you hold dear to yourself and instead surrender on bended knee to Jesus. Perhaps for you, it is a relationship that needs to be ended before you can turn to Christ wholeheartedly. Maybe it's a pattern of behavior that is harmful or damaging to you and those in your life that you love and you need to take it out right now and destroy it for the sake of the gospel of Jesus, to gain Jesus, to save your soul. As I said, folks, there is nothing more important than getting the gospel right. But look, all this stuff, all this repenting, all this burning of our books, whether actually or metaphorically, we cannot do this without the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus himself. Maybe it's not the books that you need to burn or the spells you need to confess, but it's the full gospel you need to accept and embrace. Maybe you have come to realize that you have accepted or embraced a half gospel, a semi gospel, a sub gospel, whatever you want to call it. It's not the real thing. Maybe today for the first time you need to embrace the true gospel, that Jesus lived and died a bloody death in your place as your substitute to deal with your guilt and your shame and he rose to eternal life to share it with you. 
And you see, you need the power of God to believe that and to accept it, to take it deep into your being. So I hope I've helped you understand why, as a church, we are obsessed with the gospel and why we will never stop talking about it and never stop enjoying it because it is the heartbeat of all we do as a church. So let's get the gospel straight. We're going to turn to prayer now, folks. Um, So if you want to stand with me just now, we're going to pray together.